Welcome to A Thousand Tiny Steps. I'm Barb Higgins, and in this podcast, I'll share personal stories of great joy and tragedy and the steps that brought me there. I have become adept at tracing them backward to find the origin of an event, good or bad, that has affected my life. I have gone from being on top of the world with Division I All-American success to being unable to get out of bed with the grief of losing a child and everything in between. I am painfully honest, which can make people uncomfortable, but discomfort brings growth and oftentimes tragedy brings joy. So tie, buckle, slip on, release up your shoes and join me as we begin our thousand tiny steps. Hey everybody, Barb Higgins here for episode 20 of a thousand tiny steps. This is the 12th episode in my series on Molly. <laughs> Sitting here saying those words, I realized I should actually have done 13. <laughs> is that really is a magical number for her? But I don't want to do it just because I thought of it now. <laughs> I've gone through a lot of things in my grief journey around losing Molly. The whole point of the podcast, A Thousand Tiny Steps, is to facilitate myself in examining the thousand tiny steps that led me to be the mother of a dead child, the mother of a child at 57, <laughs> and all the other things that I am. Another thread through this is something I call the beginning of the end of Molly. I like to go back and look at life decisions along the way and see which one of them sent me on a trajectory that could have put me in the position I was when Molly died. <laughs> I live an unabashedly tricky life sometimes. I don't make the best choices. I am absolutely a poster child for many psychological conditions. <laughs> but I also know that everything I go into, I go into with the right the right intentions. I've never in my life, truly never in my life, as angry as I might be, have woken up and methodically planned to hurt somebody. It just isn't in my nature. And I do seem to attract myself to people that behave in this very way. They get pleasure out of inflicting pain. These are tricky people to know. They're tricky people to fall in love with. They're tricky people to be related to. And all of us have them in our life. And in Doing this podcast and all the research that goes into speaking eloquently about things and all the research that goes into putting together a podcast, I'm just coming to meet some amazing people and learn some amazing things. In the beginning of my grief after Molly died, I started seeing a therapist and I haven't been able to find another one that matches her. I'm older now, so I'm to the point now where all my doctors are younger than me and I have a very hard time sitting in a therapist's office with somebody who I could be their mother. <laughs> and have them try to therapize me if that's the word. But I have to be open-minded about it. I love to write and writing has often been cathartic, but writing is something that I've had a very hard time doing since Molly's death. I just, I just have a hard time. KK bought me a journal in the summer of 2019. I written it diligently every day. It would have been filled up in six months. And I still have, you know, one fourth of that journal with empty pages. I was diligent and vigilant about it for a while. And then it falls by the wayside. As so many things that I endeavor do, it's been a part of this podcast piece has been a learning process. I should hire an editor to edit my journals, then I'd have to write in them every day. <laughs> As I begin episode 20 and I think about how I want to sort of bring to an end the totally Molly grief focused season of A Thousand Tiny Steps, I'm going to talk about one more thing that fed me some surprises over these past five and a half years, and that's the physical elements of grief. What happens to you physically and your physical space and your physical actions and choices. Grief leaves nothing untouched. And I've talked at length about all the different ways that grief affected us. Actually, if I look at my little list here I made of all my episodes in this season, I had grief and guilt after death. I have 
felt guilty 20 times today and it's not even noon yet. I talked about the loss of my first child, baby Gordy, and I still have unresolved issues around that, primarily with some family members, but still, it's an issue that, and an experience that stays with me. The inseparable bond, and that was Gracie and Molly. You know, I look at baby Jack-Jack now, and he's just about the age when I started to think that Gracie needed a sibling. But now here I am, 20 years later, after having Gracie, and thinking to myself the same thing, and thinking, oh, and my main focus for wanting a baby after Gracie was that she wouldn't grow old alone. <laughs> so here we have Jack-Jack now. That could be another season in itself. Episode 12 was the last week of Molly's life. And that was probably the hardest episode I've done this time around because I had to really relive everything. Molly's memorial service and funeral, that was as horrifying as it was to relive those days at the beginning of the end of Barb. It was nice to remember the kindness and the support of the community. I talked about feeling paralyzed by grief. And this lends itself to the physical piece a little bit. People often report when they get severely injured, they don't feel any pain. Well, the body quickly goes into shock so you don't. And I think it's what keeps your mental wherewithal focused enough to do what you need to do to get help for your body or whatever. And I know that in the months after Molly died, I was gutted. I'm not sure what my body or my mind was protecting each other from, but it did endeavor to keep me still. Then I talked about navigating the holidays without Molly. And as I record this, we're just a few days away from Christmas. And so I continue to navigate the holidays without Molly. (laughs) Then I did an episode on things. And what's great about this is this episode aired on December 21st. Facebook memories come up. And a year ago, at that time, Gracie and I had went to Rite Aid and bought a fake tree and set it up in her room. And it was the first actual Christmas tree that we'd set up since Molly's death. And we got it all set up and we put it in her room so she could look at it all the time. And we had fun talking about the different colors in the tree and all these different things. And one of the things we did was we played Christmas music, which was, I haven't, listened to any on purpose since 2015. And we lit a candle, this vanilla candle. And Gracie shared this eloquent, beautiful post on Facebook about it. And I shared it as sort of a push for that episode of the podcast, episode 16, Things. That continues to be an issue for me now, even as I'm finishing up this season and getting into the next season and times marching along. The things are a never-ending process. You know, I often try to ask myself if Molly was still alive, would I care about this so much? Well, probably not. You know, so we have all of those details that go into it. But I I loved the coincidence. There are no coincidences, but I loved the coincidence that the day that the episode 16 airs was almost a a year to the day after Gracie's profound post on things and how it's a part of grief. Episode 17, the Christmas show was a barometer, holiday spectacular at the City Auditorium that Cindy Flanagan and Concord Dance Academy does. I have many, many barometers as to how my grief is going. And my body's one of them. And I'll get into that in a little bit. Episode 18, I call the assholes. (laughs) I actually don't really think anyone's an asshole. I think people act like assholes. And I think people do very bad things. I will always, always try to believe that underneath all the bad, people are good. And I would love someday to have resolution with all of the people that don't speak to me right now. (laughs) It'd be interesting. And then episode 19, I called blessings because I thought I should counter the rough episode with the kind episode. And, and I mentioned a lot of people that had been kind to me. And of course, I could think of two others for every person I mentioned in my recounting of the kindnesses that people have brought. And this episode, I'll call Five Years In, Where Do We Go Now? And I will focus a bit on how grief has affected my body because it's had profound effects on me. So along with that, I've said many times in many episodes about the physician at Dartmouth that told us not to expect anything for five years, at least. And he was very, very accurate and spot on. And I've talked about 
how I see it in my grief mom groups. The moms that I've been around with now for five years or more, some of them have been involved much longer. I see it. I see where they are year after year. One thing for me that I'm much better at is stepping out of myself and really looking at the grief of others and how I can look at them to look at me. That's kind of what I hope this podcast does, that you all can listen to me or watch me tell a story about something I've gone through and whether or not you've gone through it, you pull something from it that makes you go, oh, yes, I can relate to that. or Oh, this resonates with me. And that tends to be the feedback I get. At five and a half years, we're doing number six of everything now. Everything now is the sixth without her, you know, the sixth Christmas without Molly. And, and we're in the process of really putting our house back together. I have no idea what the future will hold for me. And I've also talked about the fact that we didn't resolve any problems in our family. Roy and I resolved nothing. It just stopped. Kenny and I have resolved nothing. It just stopped. Well, Kenny and I live together and we're raising, you know, Gracie and Jack. So it's a bit different there. But in terms of really repairing the relationship, no. Everything I knew as a family member and somebody taking part in holiday celebration stuff just stopped. And while we're trying to put them back together, in terms of the effect of grief on physicality, on the physical body, on your physical home, on your physical reality, it's mind-blowing how pervasive and intense it is. So I'll start with myself physically. When I look at the beginning of the end of Molly and the beginning of the end of me, I really do look at the year leading up to her death. And I've talked about that. I was drinking heavily. My supervisor at the special ed school there and compatriot David really, really was a big drinker. And we drank all the time. I look back on it now with a lot of anger and I have to be, I have to really just be careful to be, to let the anger flow through me and not direct it at me or him or Kenny or Roy or anybody, all the people involved in that year. It was a really, really rough year in so many ways. But I really was falling apart already there. And I was fighting. I remember I, I signed up online for a weight loss thing and I bought a rower and I started rowing every day. And, you know, I started doing 100 burpees a day on April 1st on Molly's birthday. I had done them for a month at the time that she died and I couldn't do a burpee again for a long time. But I was starting to pull myself together. And I think had Molly not died, I would have had an unbelievably successful spring and summer competitively as a CrossFit athlete. I really was starting to get back into it and healing up some injuries. I was also still having my period all the time. And I apologize if that makes anyone uncomfortable, but I had had some perimenopause issues. I had had an IUD for many years, but I still got my period. And actually at the time of Molly's death, I think all three of us were having our periods, Gracie, Molly, and myself. We often did. And I felt, still felt very, very young. I was 52 turning 53. I didn't feel all that different than I felt at 43, quite honestly. I was still working out a lot. I had not been kind to my body in the months leading up to her death. That was evidenced in my weight. I was a bit puffy and bloaty and such. So Molly dies and life stops as I know it. So in every way, life stopped as I knew it. CrossFit became something completely different. My diet became whatever was within hand's reach that I didn't have to prepare. I consumed a lot of alcohol. I became very, very dependent on chemical substances, drugs and such to feel okay and to make it day to day. And I hurt. I hurt so much. I can't even, I can't even go back to how, how bad that was. And I get choked up now because I still have moments, I'm having one today actually where I really hurt. Where I, where I ponder someone or something that no longer exists in my life. And I get very fixated on some past event that was wonderful. And well, I'll never have that again. And this is where Molly and I are very similar. I remember the last day of third grade in 1971, I was sobbing. I cried for two days because I was leaving Dewey School, going to Kimball School. I would never see Mrs. Day again, my third grade teacher. I didn't, you know, and I just remember crying and crying and crying. And Molly had the same episode at the end of second grade. She loved her teacher, Mrs. Charpentier, Brenda, and she loved second grade. I actually just found some work of hers from her second grade year in a bin 
And she just, she sobbed. I mean, snot and saliva. And for two days, she, she was a mess. She couldn't even begin to enjoy summer. And Molly could do that. She could get so caught up in the memory of something good or bad that it could paralyze her. She was a tender, tender soul. I want to remember her as the perfect thing she would have turned out to be because her sister Gracie's doing a damn good job. But Molly was unbelievably sensitive. And I wonder sometimes if she would have struggled with some of the things I struggle with. I attribute a lot of my issues around surviving child abuse. You can't, you know, live through child sex abuse and not be fucked up <laughs> in many ways your whole life. And again, these are things that we just don't talk about. Molly didn't have any of that in her short life. No one ever heard her that way. Not that I know of anyway, but I think by now I would know. Famous last words. At any rate, she was just unbelievably sensitive and anxious and worried all the time. She was much better at sticking to a routine than I was, but she thrived on being busy like I did. And so I wonder sometimes what life might have been like for her had she not died. The first thing I noticed in the physical response to Molly's death was that summer, and I started waking up with little beads of sweat all over me. And I hadn't gotten a period yet. And so I thought, oh, I wonder if I'm having a hot flash, you know. It was the most bizarre experience. I was completely dry. And then I wasn't like drenched in sweat. It was little perfectly round beads of sweat all over me. It was the most bizarre thing to look at. I was sleeping on the living room floor and the light would come in early in the morning. It was summer and I could see them sometimes. It was very, very bizarre. And then I didn't get a period again. I think I've had one period since Molly's death that was not facilitated by the process of having a baby. Maybe two. That's it. They just stopped. So the first thing was I had trauma-induced menopause. So when I had my blood work done, my blood work showed that I was beginning menopause, but not enough that I wouldn't have had a period by now and all that kind of stuff. But it had not been that way a year prior. I was still, you know, getting regular exams and I was on the pill. I never once thought for a moment that I couldn't still get pregnant. So that was how I was in my early 50s. That's changed immediately. The second thing I noticed was I suddenly gained a ton of weight. Now, I think some of that may have been the medication I was taking. I know I put on 15 pounds in about two weeks after starting an anti-panic medicine. I don't remember which one it was. Now I tried so many different ones, but I gained weight right away. And it was when we went to Hawaii. And of course I ate like a pig and drank like a fish. So I'm sure that didn't help either. I didn't work out. Well, no, Gracie and I went to CrossFit quite a bit, but I was really struggling. And so two things, suddenly I'm in menopause and I gain all this weight right away. Those two physical things. The third thing that happened, and it took me a little while to see it. And it wasn't until I saw myself in pictures I would say a year or so after Molly died is I suddenly looked really old. Like I know people say I don't look old now. And as I'm watching myself give this podcast in my little computer laptop, looking at Zoom, I don't look a whole lot different than I've ever looked in this particular frame. My hair is the way I always wear it. I've worn it this way forever. But I just, all of a sudden I looked in, looked in pictures and just felt like I changed. Like I'd gotten really thick through the shoulders and chest and tummy. Like in some of that's weight, but it was just a different shape. I just looked different. And so I went back to pictures in my phone. I looked at the pictures in the last month of Molly's life of me. And yeah, I was heavy and stuff, but I had a, a youthful look about me that I, I feel like I no longer have. And I don't feel like I just naturally aged. I just think grief kicks the shit out of you. And it kicked the shit out of me. None of my physical injuries that were around CrossFit and such were too much of a bother, but I wasn't working out hard enough to hurt. I was taking a lot of drugs and spending a lot of time awake and not focused and not sober. I think that really, really trashed my body as well. I actually look back sometimes and wonder why I'm not dead. I really do wonder sometimes how I managed to survive all that. And I have to thank the universe and God and all the science and everything there is to thank for that because I certainly could have been some of the choices I was making. So here we are now, the beginning of the end of Molly, five and a half years into my forever without her until I go to heaven or wherever we go after this journey. 
the biggest change I'm noticing now in myself physically, other than being able to create a child and grow it, is that I've turned a corner back into feeling healthy and fit again. I actually felt this way just before I got pregnant with Jack. Last summer, I was, I was visiting a friend. We walked around this beautiful garden, Bedrock Gardens, it's called. And my friend said, wow, you're, you're getting your body back. You look, you, know, you look like you did when you were working out and stuff. And I remember I wasn't pregnant at the time, but I remember when, I, when the pregnancy took, I thought to myself, of course, I finally get back to normal and I'm going to grow a baby now. I needed to be that way, though, to grow the baby. I think being healthy was a big piece of it. In the process of creating the podcast, thinking about what to talk to, how to organize my thoughts, how to tell stories that share positively what I'm going through, I've started reading a book and doing a workbook called The Body Keeps the Score. And it really talks in depth about the effects of trauma on the body. And it talks about all the different things that people need to do to deal with trauma. Sometimes it's talking about it like this is. Sometimes it's getting busy. Sometimes it's taking medicine. There's therapy, there's medicine, there's, you know, getting busy. It talks about physical movement and exercise, you know, as a positive piece of, of dealing and healing from grief and trauma. And I have to say, I've never, ever agreed with anything as much as I agree with that. Long before Molly died, my way to feel better was always being outside. I remember raking pebbles and rocks in a garden at my Uncle Jimmy's house when I was, you know, 10. And I loved the feeling of being out of breath and tired and the sweat pouring down and looking at my progress. When I was a swimmer, I was a competitive swimmer for a while. I just used to get so cold in the water because I was really skinny. But I loved the feeling. I still love the feeling of swimming. It's so rhythmical and calming. And you can hear your breathing and you can hear the water. I loved it. I love cross-country skiing, both classical and freestyle skiing. It's just such a wonderful feeling. Until I started CrossFit, cross-country skiing was the only thing that really made me feel like running had made me feel. And of course there was running and some of my best physical moments have been in that place on a run where nothing hurts and you just feel so good. That would be, those times would be sometimes where I was mentally the best as well. After I lost my job in 2010, in 2011, I joined CrossFit and, and I was brought to it by one of my athletes, Sky Butman, and she's married now, so I think she has a different last name, but she brought me to CrossFit and running and sports and weightlifting for her were a huge piece of what kept her sane and growing. She actually owns a CrossFit gym now with her dad. CrossFit was a lifesaver for me. And I remember in those tumultuous years after my job loss, trying to decide how to keep my family afloat. Do I stay with Kenny? Do I leave Kenny? Do I go to Roy? Do I not go to Roy? I spent years back and forth with those questions. And there were so many things that went into those decisions, financial security, I lost an entire career. How do I now desert my family? You know, these are things that were consuming my head. And the only time I could even approach answers to those questions, what do I do next? How do I be a good mother? It always came back to Gracie and Molly and making sure that they were happy and had everything they wanted. And my happiness was secondary. And, you know, people might disagree with that. Oh, sure. But I spent a lot of my time unhappy still in some of the details of my life. But I would make the same decisions if it meant Gracie and now Jack and Molly and baby Gordy, if he'd been able to live, I think sometimes we think we have the right to be selfish. And I don't know that we do. CrossFit became the place where I could go and make myself feel the burn and feel much better about myself. And I did. In the process of reading this book, The Body Keeps the Score, it's made me really analyze back on the number of ways that we as people hurt and ways that we can help ourselves. And I know for me, one of the biggest things in my grief therapy was this therapy form called EMDR. And <laughs> I don't know right off the top of my head what EMDR stands for, but it's basically cross-body movement while you're talking about trauma. So for example, if I were 
I could not drive by Concord Hospital for the first two years after Molly died, maybe a year and a half. Where I live and, and the school that I ended up tutoring at for a little while, tutoring some students at, you have to drive right by the hospital to get me. I would take a six mile loop to drive two miles because I could not drive past the hospital. I would have a panic attack. I would become angry. I would start sobbing. And it would take me 15 minutes to calm down from driving by a building. It was really, really difficult. In a therapy session, my therapist said, okay, let's think about that then. Make believe you're driving by the hospital. Describe it to me. And I start telling her about driving by the hospital. And, and then she'll say, okay, where do you feel it? And I would tell her where I felt it. And while I'm saying these things, while we're talking about it, I'm either hitting one knee and then the other, or I'm watching her wave like a little antenna back and forth, or I'm covering up one eye and watching her, and then I'm covering up the other eye and watching. Like, it's all of these cross-body things. So where talk therapy takes the inside and gets it out, EMDR sort of takes the outside and replaces it in. It's almost the other way around, and I'm not explaining it very well. However, it combines physical movement and physical stimulus with discussing a trauma. You don't relive the original trauma. I didn't go back and relive Molly's death. I relived what I felt like when I drove by the hospital, and that was attached to Molly's death. You suggest replacement strategies while still doing these different movements. It was unbelievably, unbelievably successful. It took maybe two sessions and I could drive by the hospital. Not surprisingly, this worked really well for me. And they find, they being, being like the psychological societies and medical communities, find that EMDR is especially helpful for PTSD and abuse victims and trauma victims. Oftentimes, our abuses and traumas are physical. So we already have an issue around physical versus emotional versus spiritual. And so it's not surprising that, that a therapy that would put into play that would be so successful. Something else that comes to mind for me is when I was coaching cross country at Concord High School years and years ago, often there were running groups because you needed to train with people at your likability. But there were days when I would say, all right, choose who you want to run with. Today's an easy day and you can run with whomever you want. And I had a couple of girls on my team, Molly and Michelle, Michelle Anderson and Molly Ryder. That's who they were in high school. I don't know if their names are different now. I think, I think they are. I remember chatting after cross country one day after practice and they came back and they were so happy and and they often chose each other. I, I could see them look at each other across the room. And, and they said, we just love this day because, you know, running is such a great way to just talk about things. And that got me thinking. I remember just so clearly that conversation. And it's true. Some of my best conversations were out on runs. And when, you know, back in my college days, when I was primarily dating other runners, you know, you're in a relationship with someone, you go on a run together and you can, you can hash things out and talk. And some of my best conversations, even with myself, have been when I'm on a run. So you have that rhythmical, physical distraction, so to speak. It's like vestibular stimulation. When I was in grad school, I did a thesis proposal on using exercise to handle ADHD behaviors in fifth grade boys. That was my group. And all of those boys shared that they felt the best when they could move around while they were doing something else. So you have these kids that have to sit still in school. And this was way before they would let them chew gum or have a squeezy ball or sit on a tea stool or a yoga ball. We have so many little techniques now that give that physical distraction to somebody that can't focus without moving around. And I think that would be me. I've always, all my life had ticks. I blew in my hands or I'd play with my earrings or play with a button. I was always, always, always moving around. And, you know, I think that ties into, for me, the marriage between the physical and the emotional. I think most people would have this connection anyway, but some much stronger than others. And I know for me in my process around Molly and losing Molly, it's made a huge difference. Another thing that was mind-opening for me was when I had my 
brain tumors taken out. So here I think I have the biggest grief and trauma to date. And now suddenly I have these brain tumors in my head and I have to get my head cut open. And those physical sensations were unlike anything I've ever had. Just before the tumors were taken out, before I found them, I was just getting to the point at CrossFit now where I could do box jumps again, where I could, you know, I was getting strong enough to do certain movements that I had not been able to do since Molly's death. Then I have these brain tumors taken out. And so one of the physical things I remember most is when I laid on my side, it felt like water was in my head. I could hear it like water. You know, your ears are right there. So it was just bizarre. The only other time I've heard water in my body was when I ruptured a disc in my lower back. I was leaning over a runner and it went, and I swear I almost heard it. Anyway, I remember in my process of healing around the brain tumors, I remember some of this right after Molly died, which is why I bring it up. When the lights would be completely turned off, I became paralyzed, like I couldn't move. If you're in a pitch black room, you might have to stand for a minute to sort of get your physical bearings, but you have this thing called proprioception and it's how your body can figure out where it is in space. So if you can't see, balance and hearing and other things come into play to help you stay standing up and that sort of thing. Until I could touch something, I wouldn't be able to move. So I remember going up the stairs, we have these back stairs and it was pitch black and I just stopped. Kenny was behind me, he's like, why'd you stop? I'm like, I can't, can't move, turn the light on. Turn the light on, I went right up the stairs. That was one of them. To this day, I still struggle, and this comes and goes with doing box jumps. When I'm in the air, when I've jumped up and my feet have left the ground, before they've hit the box, it's like a millisecond. I have no idea where I am in space, like none. I don't even know how to like let my body just continue to jump to land on the box. It's really, really unsettling. I can do a box jump and then I, and then I have to like stand for a minute and then get down. <laughs> and then I usually can't do another one. Really, really, those are profound changes for me in my body. Balance. Right after Molly died, my balance was horrifying. I couldn't put my underpants on without sitting on the floor. Like I couldn't stand on one leg and put something on. It got really bad. You know, you bend over in the bathtub, bathroom, rather to dry your hair with a towel, and then you stand up. Oh my God, I've absolutely fallen down more than once. I remember at CrossFit once we were doing yoga poses and we did downward dog and child's pose and everything. And, and I fell. It felt like the floor was going like this, like I was on a ship. So that was related to brain surgery, that one. But I had unbelievable physical responses to Molly's death and then obviously to the brain surgery. I've done lots and lots to help, but I go to a chiropractor. I get massages regularly. I'm going to do some craniosacral stuff, which is some energy work around my head and neck. I still have such profound struggles. The other thing that suffering through Molly's death has taught me is how stress affects the body. And I think sometimes because women are more outwardly and inwardly, I think emotional, it's very easy for medical professionals to blame things on stress. Oh, it's a headache and she's a teenage girl. It's stress. That's Molly. Molly was told to meditate the last time she was alive in a doctor's office. You know, that was not what she needed at all. She needed a brain tumor taken out. But I can see, I can see where that can be a pervasive thing because of how I've watched my body react to stress. So in 2013, I developed this nerve condition called trigeminal neuralgia. Unbelievably painful. During the process of getting that diagnosed, I had tooth extractions. I had a bridge put in. I had gum tissue cut away. I had bone fragments taken out. All these things done to my mouth to please make it stop hurting. And I remember what finally got me diagnosed properly was that I was given all this Novocaine, the doctor that did my root canal. He said, I'm going to Novocaine you up so you can have a few hours of peace. And he Novocaine me up. I said, you missed it. It still hurts. And he goes, it can't hurt. I'm like, oh, it hurts. It's a lot of pain. Now I just have a big numb face, but it still hurts. And he looked at me funny and he goes, you need to go back to your oral surgeon and see what he thinks and make sure you tell him that. So when I went back to my surgeon that did the original tooth extraction that set this whole thing in motion, he went, oh, Novocaine and you still had pain. That sounds like trigeminal neuralgia. Or he said, that sounds neurological. 
And he sent me to a neurologist who fixed it for me. I go into all those details around this nerve condition because in those days, I filled myself up with anti-seizure meds to kill the pain. And it did. It was amazing to just not hurt. I had had a toothache for a year and I was in so much pain all the time. Now, my pain lasted profoundly, even with the medicine. I had to keep taking more. I'd adjust to one. I'd try another. I was on three different ones for a while there at the time Molly died. What I notice now in my drug-free existence is that when I'm having a really tough day or when I start to think about something that upsets me, I suddenly get this sharp prickly pain in my mouth and my mouth starts to hurt. I'm learning now like biofeedback and meditation, which is a word I really hate ever since Molly's doctor told her to meditate. Oh, I'll work it through. I take a big breath and I just try to replace my thoughts with something else. Even if you know, not, nothing fluffy, like, oh, the world is beautiful. <laughs> no, it's not like that. But I really do spend a lot of time trying to generate positive energy so that my mouth will feel better. And sometimes really what I have to do is get up and do something, which again is the physical piece for me. Along with everything else in the grief journey, it's not linear. It's not directional. You don't just move forward. There's a really, really good illustration about the path of grief. And it's like a big scribble. It's a circle. And in the circle is this big, all these scribbly lines or one big line scribbled. And that's just it. You go this way, then you go that way, then you double back. You think you have this in handle and then you don't and you lose it. And you haven't cried in a week and then you cry for a week. And grief is just all over the place. And as I look back on different barometers over the five years, another physical reality that didn't exist before Molly died is Molly's grief. That summer, right after she died, maybe, maybe the first year or so, I had to go there. I had to go there in the, at the night to make sure she really was dead and buried because I still had this feeling that she was just missing. It makes no sense. I can't even explain it. And I would lie in the grass there or I would sit in a blanket in the snow. It was pretty awful. I spent a lot of time there. Other people decorated it. The first two Christmases, we didn't decorate it. Other people did, maybe even the first three. To this day, I can go up and people have brought things. There's always new things there. But some years we've had a good handle on it and other years we haven't. And so last year, Kenny and I put lights up and we, we made it look really nice and we were really, really on top of it. And this year, three days before Christmas, as I record this, you know, her dead flowers from summer are still on that grave. It hurts me. But I, can't, I just can't get there. You know, it's one of those things where you just have to be in a mindset about it. I haven't gone to see Molly's grave other than a drive-by to make sure she's okay in months because I just, you know, people might be thinking, oh, it's because you have a baby. No, I can take the baby with me. That's an easy outing. And there are plenty of times I'm out and about that I could go and I just don't. And right now it's hard for me. What's hard for me is that, you know, nobody goes to decorate it anymore with any regularity, nor should they. I mean, you know, Molly died five and a half years ago with those Kids who are 12 are in college now. They don't even remember seventh grade. So it wouldn't dawn on them that Christmas is here and Molly's grave is gross. <laughs> that physical reality is another tangible thing that grief and trauma can affect and bring about. I used to love running in the cemetery. I'd go and say hi to my grandparents and I'd say hi to everyone I knew and run all around. It's beautiful in there. I have beautiful pictures of years past in that cemetery. That's not something I can do at all anymore. Absolutely not. <laughs> Not that I run much, but the whole journey between what's going on in your life and the, your physical well-being is much more intermingled than we think. I would suggest all of you read the book. It's really small print, which I find irritating, but maybe it's online. I don't know. There's a workbook and I've just really started looking in the workbook, but I think it's my next step. In my next season of my podcast, as I try to find the true beginning of the end of Molly, I'm going to talk about all those years after I lost my job. That's a chunk of time that my life was in a great state of upheaval. And I look at a lot of the physical issues I had during those years and how much help I got with physical activity. And I think hopefully this will help in my process with 
going through that workbook in the body keeps the score, but it certainly, certainly does. We all can see if you eat too much, you gain weight. If you don't eat enough, you lose weight. If you smoke cigarettes, you cough. We can see reactions, our body's reactions to things easily. You sit in the sun, your skin turns brown or red, depending on your DNA. I get a nice tan, which is a blessing and a curse. If I can look back on the last five and a half years and try to look ahead as much as I like to look ahead, which is not at all. If I can get through today, I feel like I'm doing pretty well. I think my focus for a while will be what makes me feel good physically, how my body responds well physically. I have always in my life used physical activity to deal with stress. When I was a little girl and being abused, I went to swim practice three nights a week, you know, plus violin and Girl Scouts and choir and everything else that I did. I was never, never home, but I was swimming. And, you know, we walked to and from school. We walked everywhere, rode my bike, went sledding in the winter. Very, very, very busy. When that ended, when swimming ended, I did gymnastics and started dance. And I was terrible at gymnastics, pretty good at dance. But again, those, those activities kept me busy day to day. I got into high school and started running. And that was my life for a good 15 years of every single day, running all the time, actually more than that. But I remember when I first started running, you know, I'm asthmatic. Everyone's worries were that it would make me wheeze. And actually running all but cured my asthma. That and some good inhalers that prevent asthma. But my health turned around when I started to run. And so for me, being healthy physically has always been a majorly important piece of the equation. And when I've let that slide, everything falls apart. You know, all through my years teaching in the district and coaching and having Gracie and Molly, I was a runner and, you know, worked out at the Y as well. Not real weight training, but some. And it was always a highlight of my day to get a workout in. And then after my job loss, when running became too emotionally painful, I started CrossFit and have loved that experience. Now, that's another thing. People have these ideas about CrossFit and what it is and isn't. It can really be anything you want it to be. If you want to be this intense, competitive CrossFit Games athlete, you certainly can. And if you want to go and lose weight and have a nice community of friends in a like-minded gym, like-minded meaning you're all kind to one another and you like the group team aspect, then CrossFit can be that as well. It's really one of those, it's like running in my mind. Anyone who wants to can do it. No matter how good you are, how strong you are, how fat or skinny, tall or short, you know, there's CrossFit in you. <laughs> and so that's been very, very, very crucial to my well-being since I joined in 2011. And that's a long time, 10 years this year. What do I do next? I don't know. I know that I can't wait for the winter to be over and the days to get longer and warmer. I feel very disorganized in my life right now. I don't know how to say this without sounding off the wall, but the life I'm living right now day to day, I don't like. It's not the Jack piece is yummy and delicious. I love having him in my life and I love the people that his presence brings me to and who I'm meeting and, and things that are happening in that process. I really, truly feel just unsettled though, in some ways, like I'm, I'm supposed to be doing something and I'm not doing it. Or how do I get to that next place? And some of it is, you know, I have to set my own schedule and work on my own and I'm not very good at those things. I need the physical parameters. See, look at that. I have all these physical issues around my willingness to succeed or ability to succeed. At any rate, the beginning of the end of Molly, I think, is a question that will take me all the way back to my, my own beginnings is what I think. As I tell my stories and talk about my experiences, I just know that for me, being healthy and well in my physical body will be hugely important. As I say these things, I had foot surgery the year after Molly was born, well, 2005, and my foot's a mess. It needs to be operated on again, and I trip on my toes. I can't move them. So if I'm not careful when I'm barefoot, I can roll them right over. It's so painful. And I did that last night going up the stairs. They're all black and blue today. I can hardly walk. And I have this torn rotator cuff. It's not a big tear, but it's a deep tear. I can't really do anything <laughs> without a lot of pain. You know, here I am talking about keeping your body healthy and 
I don't know. I do put my Arbonne lotion on my face every day. So maybe that'll count. At any rate, five and a half years, she's been gone. In some ways, I'm much better than I was. And in other ways, I just have not made a step. And I think that will be that way for a long, long time. In you and your lives and your stories, I try to think about places and things that make me happy. I love walking and hiking. I love working out. I love being outside. I love the feeling of the sun on my skin. I like going to the beach. I like exploring. I like being busy. I like to get up and have a long list of things to do. I can also sit on the beach with a book for hours. <laughs> That's true as well. I don't know. Some of the criticisms I take for having a baby at 57 is that I won't live long enough to see him grow up. And if I'm anything like everyone except Molly in my family, then I'll live late into my 90s and Jack will be 40. And he won't like losing his mom, but he won't be 12. Having said that, Molly thought she lived to be 90 as well. I'm struggling, I guess, to find a good way to end this podcast. Maybe there just isn't a good way to end it today. But, you know, the body does keep the score. And as I navigate my life in my new life without any of the things I thought I would have forever, <laughs> most of which is peace of mind and a sense of well-being, all I can say is that I'm going to just keep doing the best I can. I have to also admit I pray all the time. And I'm a bit of a frantic prayer, like, please, God, please, God types of prayers. And that's how I prayed as a little girl when I wanted my life to be better. Please, God, help me. I don't know if that's always effective or not. I think I should be a bit more focused in it, I guess. I don't know. But I also know I do my best praying when I can be out and moving around. So I'm going to get my foot looked at, I think, I'm getting some injections in my shoulder, some plasma injections to facilitate healing. And I'll continue to eat the good food and do the good CrossFit <laughs> and try to navigate the reality of the fact that Molly's never coming back and nothing will be the way it was. So that's that. I look forward to starting season three. I haven't quite figured out the stories I'll tell, but I do know that I need to keep tracing my steps back. The next logical piece of my life around Molly and Jack, I guess, and everything is the years from losing my job to now. I don't know. I'll have to see. I have a lot to talk about, but I promise I'll have interesting stories. Keep you all entertained. Have a wonderful day. Be kind or be crabby. Be whoever you need to be. And as always, have a good day, everybody. Hey, thanks for listening and for supporting A Thousand Tiny Steps. I hope you enjoyed the episode and will continue to listen. Feel free to leave a review and share my stories with your friends. Also, please reach out if you have stories to share. I love hearing from and connecting with my listeners. If you would like to know what I'll be talking about down the road, you can find me on Instagram at barb underscore 444, on Facebook as Barb Higgins, and at my website, www.1000tinysteps.com.